So sometimes as we do this practice and, you know, maybe hear wonderful teachings on the truth of suffering, we can forget that the practice is really to help us to discover innate joy, innate happiness. And so tonight, I wanted to remind us of this through speaking about the quality or the Brahma-vihara of mudita, which is appreciative joy, uh, sympathetic joy, empathetic joy. Um, It's really that beautiful quality of heart-mind that rejoices in goodness, appreciates goodness, appreciates the happiness in the world, the happiness in ourselves and others. And, you know, as I was preparing this talk this afternoon, it was joyful, (laughs) you know, just turning the mind in that direction. And it it was like, oh, right, yeah. Um, And then I told Eric that I was going to be talking about Mudita tonight, and he goes, oh, I'm so happy for you. (laughs) And it just has that infectious quality to it. And it's, it's just, you know, one of the wonders of the world, really, when we can um, rejoice in goodness. And that's what this practice is about, contrary to what we may at times feel like is happening and what it's about. And it's really important because without it, the mind becomes dry, withered. Uh, You know, if we're lost in dukkha, in grief, in despair, that the mind is heavy. It's like a lead weight in some way. And, you know, it just doesn't have that buoyancy to really be with what is, to open to what is. One, there's a, a visual image that I think is really good at pointing to the quality of mudita. And it's actually talked about in the teachings. And that mudita is likened to the, the smile that you see on all of these Buddha statues. And actually, this one here does have a very nice little uplifting uh, smile. And, and, you know, I think it's really important to remember that the Buddha was somebody who saw deeply into the immensity of suffering. And there still is this smile upon his face. So, you know, it can, it can be inspiring in itself. And, and some people learn more through a visual image or felt sense. And so, you know, that's one that's accessible in the hall. It can be accessible in other places in our lives and remind us. So this quality of mudita, uh, you know, appreciative joy, it's where we join others in, in an empathetic joining around recognizing good qualities, wholesome qualities. And that in itself really helps to uh, bring down the boundaries of separation. 
And if you've ever had moments where you've shared in another's happiness, you know how powerful that can be. I had a wonderful role model around this quality of mudita. Uh, it was from a Zen master, Hogan-san, the Zen master who gave me my name. And he is just this delightful, joyful being. And, you know, when he would come to teach a retreat, he would arrive, this little tiny Zen monk at the airport. I'd go pick him up, and he'd have these two big suitcases with him. And I think, what's a monk traveling with two big suitcases? <laughs> and, and then what I discovered was it was full of presents for everybody. Know that he uh, would just arrive with presents, he'd give away all these presents, and then before he'd leave, he'd fill up his bags with new presents for where he was going next. It was quite the procedure. But he also, it's like he liked to rejoice in other people's happiness. Someone told him good news, and he would just be right there with them in it, in that happiness. And so one day I was with him. And we were talking away, and somebody came in and delivered some good news to me. And so I was, you know, in that moment, there was this happiness. And he grabs my hands, and we start jumping up and down in the middle of the room. <laughs> and what was so beautiful about him, too, was he, in that moment, would be that way. And in the next moment, he'd come in with that Zen stick. And <laughs> it's like, whoa, okay. You know, it, it didn't lead him into a sentimental state. But his heart was open in the way that when joy was there, joy was, he, he was empathetic with that. It's really uh, quite wonderful to experience that. And it really leads us into this limitless potential, this vastness of the human heart. It's a doorway into it. And, you know, what a, what a doorway. It really is quite something. Boundless joy. There's a description that comes from the Tibetan teachings. And it's said that the, the camel is a very sensitive creature. And so if a mother camel loses her calf, then the suffering that she feels is immense. It's also said that if that camel then finds her calf, her joy is boundless. And this is said to be the quality of mudita. The root meaning is to be pleased or have a sense of gladness. And the actual root of the word mudu, it's funny, I break it down and suddenly I can't say it. The first part of mudita, mudu, is a tender heart. It's really a joy that gives wings to our hearts. This is a teaching from Yanaponikatera. And he says about Mudita, noble and sublime joy is a helper on the path to the end of suffering, not one who is depressed by grief, but one possessed of joy finds that serene calmness leading to a contemplative state of mind. And only a mind serene and collected 
is able to gain liberating insight. And we actually find the quality of joy itself in the seven factors of awakening. So, you know, I know from my own experience, too, of just seeing. One time, for whatever reasons, the mind opened to the immensity of suffering. And it, it was just like, it wasn't just personal suffering. It felt universal. And, and, and not just this universe, but all universes, all levels. And it was just like such a, a, a feeling of, wow, this suffering, it's so vast. And then it's like, how can one be happy in the face of so much suffering? And that actually became really a question in my mind. And I, at that point, when I met with teachers whom seemed to have some level of realization, though I was asking them if I had the opportunity, how can we be happy when, the, when beings are caught in suffering? And one answer that came back, you know, was kind of like, it's like, because it's not real. And, you know, to me it was like, well, those beings believe it's real. And, and then there was, um, you know, kind of the, the reminder of in China and Japan that there's this big tradition of that when one attains uh, awakening, realize, realization that is liberating, that there is this huge belly laugh. And then, you know, Why? because they've realized that all of the suffering was based in misperception. And so still to me it was sort of like, well, you know, when beings are caught in suffering, how can we be happy? And then it was, it came to this sense, because we all have that potential for innate joy, innate happiness. And that is there for every being. And that is profound. That is lightning to the heart. And then, you know, it was for me also to see, as somebody pointed out to me, does it make sense for you to hang on to suffering when you know something else is possible? No, it doesn't. If we have access to joy in our lives, does it make sense to wallow in suffering? It doesn't seem to to me. Mm. Mudita is said to be the hardest of the Brahma-viharas. It's also said to be the most neglected. And I discovered it was true in a level of neglect when um, some years ago I was putting together a talk on mudita and I googled. This is the Dharma teacher in the modern age can Google. I googled mudita and there was a description of mudita and for every other Brahma-vihara there was all kinds of links with it. With mudita, There was no links. (laughs) It was really interesting. 
you know, that we, it, it just somehow gets lost in the mix. Hmm. Hard? I think there's a couple of reasons why it can be hard. It can be hard because we can easily fall into its near enemy, which is, uh, no, its far enemy, sorry, which is jealousy and envy. That when we see somebody else who's got good fortune, who is in some way happy, and it's easy to go, hmm, how come they've got that and I don't? Or what makes them so special? You know, that, that somewhere, or, or, you know, or we might start to feel like, oh, God, I'm unworthy. I don't have that. You know, and it really brings up these feelings. And I think it can also be that we have triggers around happiness and joy. You know, that many times in our lives, we have known of temporary happiness, temporary joy, and maybe lapsed into thinking it was permanent thinking that in some way it was going to bring a lasting happiness. And it didn't. And so there was, can be a sense of being betrayed, that, or a sense of great loss. And so there can come this protective way we have with the heart. Well, I'm not going to open because it could happen again. I'm not going to open because it's not going to last. And so we become fearful of fleeting joy, fleeting happiness. And, and then even in our meditation, you know, we become fearful with joy and happiness. We hear about don't get attached. And so rather than not get attached, we just won't go there. You know, and we push it away. And, you know, that, that, so there can be, even in the exploration of joy and happiness, a lot of stuff. Or, you know, we can have this idea, in, because the Four Noble Truths are brilliant and are a recipe to happiness, to really discovering innate joy. But because it speaks about suffering, we believe that as a Buddhist practitioner, the deeper we are in our suffering, the closer we are to freedom. You know, it can just be funny ideas. I don't know about you, but my brain can get funny ideas you know, that it extrapolates, which really can come from wisdom, but that you know, we just get funny notions about. And so we have the idea that unless we're really sitting here in the pits of despair, we're not really practicing. We're not coming close to face-to-face with our suffering. Um, so you know, it can be confronting in that way. And, you know... It, Really, like when I, I think back in my own practice, you know, just the idea of doing the Brahma Viharas, the idea of doing metta, you know, that was for the wusses. Forget it. That was, that was for those who, who you know, didn't really have that, that tenacity or that, you know, fire. And so, you know, that just keeps us from learning to open to the joy. I'd like to share a teaching from a Tibetan uh, teacher named Lama Yeshe. Uh, he lived not so long ago, was, uh, has been really uh, helpful in Tibetan teachings coming into the West. Uh, he says, from the moment we wake up in the morning until we fall asleep at night, and even throughout our dreams, we are driven by 
desire. And behind all of our desire is the wish to be happy. I mean, to me, even just, you know, thinking of it in those terms, how many times have we berated ourselves because of the greed in our minds and put ourselves down because of the greed? And yet, it's just really a misplaced desire for happiness. And that desire for happiness is really something to take to heart, to honor. I spoke about that a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago about honoring our aspirations. And you know that this is um, something that's important. I'd like to share something from one of the suttas from a monk named Samidhi. He was diligently practicing and he was asked by a celestial being why he was giving up the happiness for sense pleasure for a vague promise of happiness in the future. And he replied by saying that he was giving up the promise of happiness in the future so that he could dwell fully in the moment. And this is the joy, the level of contentment that we can discover within this mind, within this being. When we start to let go of the promise of happiness in the future, and really look towards what brings true joy and happiness. We find that there is joy along the path. We discover joy when we start to really taste of the qualities of loving-kindness, of compassion, equanimity, of wisdom. When we really start to delight, you know, just the delight that's not, that comes from just seeing something in its simplicity. I remember like a moment that just is etched in my mind was, you know, my first retreat was Sayadaw Upandita. And, you know, just struggling. Um, And then there was just moments of mindfulness where just for a moment the mind heard a sound and there was just hearing. But there was just a raptness of attention in that. A lightness of heart nothing else being needed, nothing to get rid of. These simple moments of mindfulness. We find that, you know, because we can 
yet understanding when we hit the challenges in our practice, that that helps for there to be a balance. I'd like to share a teaching from Mahagosananda, uh, a Cambodian monk who actually used to live in the area, a really delightful being. Uh, The last time that I actually saw him um, was at a point in his life where he he didn't have all of... uh, the capacities he'd had earlier in his life, that dementia was setting in. And yet his face was vibrant. It was so alive. And I remembered the Buddha talking about how, you know, what we turn our minds towards, what we'll reap the fruits of. And just looking at his face, it was like a way of seeing the direction he had been turning his mind in. And he, too, was a monk who had seen immense suffering in his life because he had, well, he'd actually been in the jungles, I think in Thailand, when the Khmer Rouge uh, created so much suffering in Cambodia. But he came out um, towards the end of that to help Cambodian people rebuild the monasteries. And, you know, he'd seen immense suffering. And he'd help people amidst that suffering to turn their minds in a wholesome direction. And so he says, if we cannot be happy in spite of our difficulties, what good is our spiritual practice? And I think that's important to remember. You know, it's to really help us in the midst of our difficulties to remember this happiness and joy. We often look at it that when we get rid of these difficulties and challenges, then we'll be happy. But really, we're looking to what helps gives buoyancy amidst the challenges. Our practice is really a watering of the seeds of happiness and a refinement as to the cause, the understanding of the cause of happiness. So one of the things in helping the mind with this quality of appreciation is to remember qualities of goodness. We can remember that these qualities are innate, that sometimes just remembering that even in this moment where we might not feel we have access, the potential is still there. We can remember to look for these qualities. We get so adept at seeing what's wrong, and we can often overlook simple moments of kindness, compassion, care.
we can look to moments of the small joys in life. A moment of seeing a setting sun and the heart is just for a moment in that place of childlike wonder. Moments of appreciation of our lives, that we have a body, that we have the sense doors, that we live on a planet that has an earth that supports us in being here, that has air that we can breathe, food and water that nourishes us. We can appreciate that we live in a time when we can hear teachings that can light up our hearts, that can help us to understand the potential of this life. That right now, we're in a place where we can practice. We can consciously put the teachings into practice. This can really bring a buoyancy, a lightness of being. And it was brought home to me at a time in my life when I was really sick. And every day, my practice was to, for one moment, let my heart open. And that sometimes was looking at a plant, sometimes looking at the clear blue sky and sunshine, sometimes being in an ocean, swimming, just laying in the ocean. But it was to, each day, find something that opened or touched my heart. Could be, you know, being here, just seeing somebody smile. Could be just watching somebody practice with a real sense of sincerity and devotion. Could be in seeing that somebody else has offered meal dana. There's, this is really rejoicing in their virtue, in the wholesome qualities of their generosity. So I'd like to share a teaching from uh, the Karmapa. He talks about rejoicing in virtue. He says, there are two ways of rejoicing. Rejoicing in the virtue functioning as a cause and rejoicing in virtue as a result. We can delight in the virtuous actions that someone does, knowing that at some point in the future, they will benefit from these actions. Or we can rejoice when these actions come to fruition. He also goes on to say, what are the benefits of expressing this sympathetic joy? In terms of others' virtuous actions and the results, which could even be liberation, if we sincerely rejoice in their achievement, we will achieve a result that is even greater than what is attained by the person who actually performed the activity. I mean, this is, you know, like the sharing of joy, the rejoicing in virtue. It's like sharing of merit. 
in a sense. Um, We all benefit. If we rejoice in the fruition of our own activity, the result will become immeasurable. We can rejoice, appreciate, just being here and living by the precepts. That's a cause for joy, for happiness. Sometimes we need to give ourselves permission to open to joy because of that fear of being attached, because of that fear of disappointment. But as we see joy in in these smaller forms come and go, it really teaches us of impermanence, the truth of impermanence. And then we will have the the wisdom that William Blake so um, wonderfully says, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I heard about one thing that we can rejoice in when we're really feeling like it's hard to rejoice, that we can rejoice in what we don't have that we don't want. So I'd like to also speak a little bit about the um, far enemy, that of envy, jealousy, the comparing mind, where it is, you know, if we are in some way really living from that very limited small I, me, mine, and somebody is just radiantly glowing, it's like put, wanting to put on the sunglasses. <laughs> you know, it, it's painful. You know, we can, we can just feel like the, the heart retracting, recoiling, um, and the comparing mind. You know, and you know, maybe you've seen it. Um, you walk in and you sit down in the hall and you just kind of happen to notice the person beside you just sitting there with that smile on your face. And you, you just look at them and you think, oh, they're faking it. You know, or, or you know, there's just some, the mind comes in with these subtle put downs, you know, just a dis, or a disparaging comment, dismissive of, of it. And, you know, it's just a way that reinforces separation, a way that reinforces feelings of unworthiness, uh, feelings of guilt, not being good enough. Um, we find that, you know, in moments of jealousy and uh, envy, that there can be this mixture of greed, of wanting what the other person has, or aversion of really just not wanting. And it really can be a brutal state. 
I know I have suffered immensely through jealousy and, and being on retreat, uh, you know, where many times our minds are left uh, to imagination. And we see somebody moving so slowly and looking to be so mindful. And, you know, we just get intensely jealous. And, and we, and for whatever reasons, can't practice that way. And we see them, and it, every time we see them, it says, you're not good enough. It's excruciating. It's really, really painful. And what was interesting to me was when I actually began to work more with this quality of mudita, it was in those moments simply changing the channel. And so instead of focusing on what I didn't have that I wanted, looking at their happiness. And I was amazed to see the effect of doing that, that I didn't have to stay entrenched in the suffering. But just by looking at their happiness, my mind became happy. Was, it, and it was kind of, in the beginning, disbelief that it could be so. But it, it can happen. It doesn't mean that you know, it's always going to be happen. Happen. You know, sometimes we're, there's a real. It's we're hitting very deeply into that jealousy, and the mind just can't shift from there. But it is a potential. And the Buddha talked in his teachings about how. Um, any comparing mind to be better than, to be worse than, or even to be equal to is a form of conceit. And that, you know, that really in these states where jealousy is strong and it's referring, you know, bringing up that unworthiness, unworthiness is simply a form of conceit, of I am. I am in comparison to something else. And that is suffering. I encourage you when jealousy or envy is there to see what can happen if you shift to happiness, the other person's happiness, and just to see what effect this has in the mind. The near enemy of mudita is that of exuberance, which is uh, (laughs) excruciating. If you've ever done mudita practice intensively and got caught in exuberance, you know it well, that it's very disconnected. It's not an energy that's sustaining. Uh, and, you know, it, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it has, because it, there uh, is this quality of joy that's there, it's just being, it's that being swept away by the joy rather than remaining connected. 
I like this description from a Sri Lankan woman named Eileen Sirawardana. And she was a professor in Buddhist studies. She says, Mudita is a joy and appreciation flowing quietly out of the lore of one's heart towards others like water from a stream flowing outwards from the bowels of the earth. This quality of mudita. Children are so great at teaching this quality that, you know, to watch a child offer a gift and then the gift is received. You know, their faces just light up. They find joy in being happy for others. I was once um, talking to this woman who shared a story about teaching her granddaughter metta. And, you know, each night as the granddaughter went to sleep, they would do metta and they would do it for, you know, different, different people. And then at the end one night, the, the little girl says to her grandmother, I'm happiest when I'm doing metta for you. You know, that just seeing that, you know, when, when you can offer something to another and there's happiness there, that brings joy to us. IMS living here these 15 years, uh, just, uh, it's, it's a great practice that happens around here, you know, from, you know, Eric saying to me he was happy because I was <laughs> doing this talk on mudita, but uh, there's just so many times where people practice mudita here, uh, where you just get the sense of people appreciating your good fortune, you know, and just very empathetically being there. Um, one incident was just sitting at a dining room table and um, tempeh had been served. And tempeh isn't everybody's favorite food. So there was eight people sit, you know, approximately sitting at this table and you know, we're kind of looking at the tempeh and a little bit of grumbling, whatever. And then somebody says, oh, I'm so happy there's tempeh today. And everybody just you know, says in return, oh, that's great. You know, there was a way to rejoice in it. Uh, it's, it's beautiful to see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in people's lives, like even somebody who's really suffering, and if they have a moment where they have some small joy, it's a ray of sunshine. And that can be rejoiced in. We need to let go of our ideas of what we think happiness should be for others if we're you know, really learning to rejoice in, in the small joys of life, in being happy for people's good fortune in however it comes. It doesn't mean that if they're doing unskillful things that we rejoice in that. But where, where really um, you know, there's no suffering as a consequence, that is something we can rejoice in.
one of the benefits of mudita is said to be that it eliminates boredom and that we find this small delight in things. And, and that brings connection. So, you know, like for me when I was sick and, you know, alone, withdrawn in a sense, that somewhere that just helped bring, helped open up the circle. And that's w- what we really do. And, you know, the joy multiplies in the world when we can be happy for someone else. It means if we don't see the causes and conditions in our own life in this moment to be happy, but we see it somewhere else, the joy just multiplies. I'd like to share a teach- another teaching from Nyanaponika Tara. And just to say that if you've not read, he's got, I think it's just a, a chapter in one of his books, uh, it's, and it's on the Brahma Viharas. He just speaks so beautifully about each of the Brahma Viharas. Um, I really recommend reading it if you haven't um, come in t- contact with his work. He says, let us teach real joy to others. Many have unlearned it. Life, though full of woe, holds also sources of happiness and joy, unknown to most. Let us teach people to seek and to find real joy within themselves and to rejoice with the joy of others. Let us teach them to unfold their joy to even sublimer heights. And that really just takes us back to the innate joy, happiness, the joy that comes from understanding things as they are. It also is the joy that helps us to live in the world in a skillful and helpful way. You know, to have it as a basis in our lives to invite this joy. I'd like to close tonight with a teaching from the Dalai Lama. This is from his book, Ethics for a New Millennium. My call for a spiritual revolution is thus not a call for a religious revolution, nor is, is it a reverence, or, nor is it a reference to a way of life that is somehow otherworldly, still less something magical or mysterious. Rather, it is a call for a radical reorientation away from our habitual preoccupation with the self. It is a call to turn towards the wider community of beings with whom we are connected and for conduct that recognizes others' interests alongside our own. Letting our practice be a spiritual revolution that allows us to make the radical reorientation away from self and bringing true joy into the world. So let's just sit for a few minutes. 